Welcome to the Truth Labs podcast with me, Gary Schroeder. Where did our moral understanding come from? A teenage girl came across my blog one afternoon and left the following comment. I have a totally different view on the value of Christianity. Do we really need religion in this day and age? If you know the difference between right and wrong, why do you need religion? If you can show respect, why do you need religion? If you can make a positive difference in someone's life, why do you need religion? What matters is how you treat someone. Put a smile on their faces. It's that easy. I've received many similar comments over the years. People often believe that Christianity is simply a system of moral rules. It's not, but that's another subject. And subsequently claim they don't need that system because they already know the difference between right and wrong. Who needs a teacher when the subject has already been mastered? Ironically, this claim proves too much. The fact that almost everyone recognizes that they innately know what's right and wrong is a significant piece of evidence for God's existence. This is called the moral argument. The moral argument makes the case that, number one, objective moral values exist. That is, there are things that are right and wrong for all people, regardless of anyone's personal opinion. And that number two, the existence of these objective moral values implies the existence of a moral authority, such as God. In other words, if there are certain moral, quote, laws that apply to all people, such as you shouldn't kill someone for fun, then there must be a moral law giver with the authority to create those laws. In this chapter, in this podcast, we'll cover two, these two questions. Number one, do objective moral values exist? And number two, where would objective moral values come from? That is from chapter four of the book, Talking With Your Kids About God, 30 Conversations Every Christian Parent Must Have by Natasha Crane. You know, we're in this long or a subsection on the existence of God. And we put forth a number of times this notion that there are two broad categories of people, those who believe the Bible, believe it is authoritative, and you can rely and trust the things in it, and those that don't, and those that don't, or at least don't believe it to be the Word of God. And so the claims and the questions and the approach to answering the questions in this section of the series of the podcast is really looking at what can we know from nature itself, or in other words, what can we know from things outside of the Bible that give us some good reasons, some good evidence to believe in the existence of God. And if you're with, with us here for the first time, just jumping into this episode, you have to realize that none of these are proofs for the existence of God. And none of the questions we've addressed so far really point to the conclusion or they don't result in the conclusion that therefore the answer to these questions is the God in the Christian Bible. None of these say that. 
all of these have been consistent with the God that shows up or is revealed in the Christian Bible, but it doesn't automatically conclude that that is the result. So we're just marching our way through incrementally answering these questions, or at least opening up the conversation of or around these questions so that we can begin for ourselves, number one, but then for other two, for others as well, begin to have a dialogue to uncover, hopefully uncover, recover the truth. And that's why we're in the truth labs. We're creating experiments and experiments require effort in order to test, in order to test them. So the question here is where did our moral understanding come from? And I will likely spend a disproportionate amount of time really focusing on the first question in this topic. Again, so there's two broad questions here, sub-questions, if you will. The first one is, do moral, objective moral values exist? If the answer is no, if there are no, if there is no such thing as objective, or in some ways you could say absolute moral values or claims, then there's really no reason to explore the conversation further. If everything is relative, everything is subjective, then there would be no way to make the conclusion that there would be a singular moral law giver, as is claimed in the first uh, paragraph or two in this book, in this chapter. And so the first question we have to kind of dig into a little bit here is, is there such a thing as objective moral values, absolute moral values that are universal across all people, regardless of an individual's or even a group's opinion as to whether those things are true or not. So let's look at the book. Uh, we'll read a couple things here and then we're going to bounce out of there and dig into some material from uh, a lecture from Greg Kokel from, um, at least the lecture was given at uh, the University of Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles on this notion or the topic of relativism, because it's very much related to trying to answer that first question. But first, let's go back to the book. Do objective moral values exist? Like the commenter on my blog, most people assume there are things we know are right and wrong. When a child is kidnapped or an innocent person killed by gang violence, no one asks a friend, Hey, what's your opinion on what happened? Do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing? We don't ask because we assume others would make the same value judgment. These things are wrong. If there are things that are indeed right and wrong, regardless of anyone's opinion, then objective moral values exist. There are as much facts about reality as statements like humans breathe air. But is it possible that, despite what may seem self-evident, there is no objective morality? That actions such as kidnapping are actually neither right or wrong, as much as it would make us cringe to admit. And that's actually what some people claim. That seemingly, quote, objective moral truths are simply an illusion. They believe we're just so accustomed to our societal norms that we incorrectly assume objective moral values must exist. Skeptics commonly point to two things that make the case for morality, that make the case that morality is subjective, which is relative to individual opinion. 
rather than objective. Number one, where we'll focus a lot of our time this morning, first, they say that cultures differ in what they consider moral. For example, some cultures have practiced senicide, the authorized killing of elderly community members. In other cultures, this would be considered immoral. Doesn't that suggest that objective moral values like murder is bad must not exist? Not at all. Oftentimes, apparent moral differences between cultures reflect a difference in their evaluation of circumstances, not a difference in underlying values. Every culture agrees, for instance, that the intentional unjustified killing, murder, of other humans is wrong. Cultures sometimes differ, however, on what justifies killing someone. In the case of genocide, cultures may justify killing their sick elderly as a loving act of mercy, something very different to them than murder. Many supposed moral differences between cultures are not actually differences in underlying morals at all. For the sake of argument, however, let's say we could find a culture that truly believes killing people at any time is acceptable. Would that prove objective moral values don't exist? Again, not at all. Some people may insist that 2 plus 2 equals 5, but that doesn't mean there isn't an objectively right answer. Even if examples of true moral disagreement can be found, that doesn't outweigh the fact that a core set of values runs throughout almost all cultures, evidence that strongly suggests objective moral values do exist. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in this topic of objective morality um, and more than I can do in a single podcast episode. But I think it's helpful to just acknowledge up front that our previous episodes have really taken, taken the perspective of natural theology. Some people say general revelation, what we can observe in nature. And even you could say to a degree what we can observe scientifically that give us good reasons to believe in God? Well, this question isn't really a scientific one. This notion of where did our moral understanding come from? Uh, we'll, we'll come into it. There are folks that do claim that you can explain all of our moral understanding from science itself, but we'll unpack that a little bit later. But I do just want to acknowledge that, that the... This discussion really, it hinges less on observable and testable hypotheses and more on intuition and some level of observation in, in philosophical understanding. So let's unpack what I just said. So intuition, that is on some level you may say uh, a cop-out. But I think if you are a person that really is looking for what's the truth here, you would say, and I think you would agree with the author, that there are some things, and you know, we would do well in a discussion to try to identify what those things are, that do seem to be universally believed to be right versus wrong. And so... Uh, if we don't believe that, if we believe there are no universals, 
then you would have to say you, you, you would be called a relativist, a relativist. And that's what I wanted to get into uh, from this lecture from Biola, from Greg Kokel. So if you truly believe that under no circumstances is there anything that is objectively morally right or wrong, absolutely right or wrong, then you would be a relativist. So let's unpack that a little bit. So there are three types of moral relativism. Number one, the society does relativism. That's, a, that's kind of a description, a little bit like what was presented in the book sections, uh, the paragraphs in the book we read, this notion that morals, right and wrong, are really defined by a society, what a society does. So other names for this could be called cultural relativism. So here's the claim. We used to think that morality was objective, but that was before we encountered other cultures and their moral practices. Now we see that people do in fact differ morally across cultures. So morality is just a function of culture. This is very popular, at least at the time of this recording, not even in cultures in the sense of you know, far off people literally living in other parts of the world than, than you may be living, but uh, differences in the sense of um, other groups of people within your own um, country, within your own ethnicity, within your own background. There's this notion, you know, my truth versus your truth. We'll probably get into a whole episode on that sometime. Um, but here, that's the claim. At one point, when we were just kind of insular, when we just knew, you could just imagine it this way, um, if all you knew were the value systems of your own household, perhaps yourself and your family members, that was the universe you lived in. And so if you tried to codify, if you tried to write down what are the standards of right and wrong, you would do so based on your knowledge of the people in your own household and your history. You may believe those are, at that time, you may have believed that those are universally accepted. Well, then one day you go to a dinner party at your uh, neighbor's house and you realize they do things quite differently. And so as the claim goes, you may think, oh, well, that was just the way we did it. That doesn't mean it's right. And that doesn't mean they're wrong. It's just a different way of doing it. So let's look at some replies to this claim. So even if the observation is true, then it still does not follow that no one is objectively correct. So even if the claim is true, so even if the observation, I should say, is true, the observation is this, uh, you thought there was objective morality when you learned about more, more cultures or you learned about your neighbors and they do things differently. Oh, so now the observation is that people do things differently. Does the conclusion therefore follow that there is no objective morality? And the answer is, of course, no, that is not a, a logical conclusion. And so the example often referenced, which I think is, is at least a useful one to begin a conversation is, you know, in the days where uh, long ago, you may have to look at a history class for this one, but there are these things called checkbooks, checkbooks, and you would write a check for say $10. But if you had $100 in your bank account, and you just wrote a check, which is like a payment for something of $10, well, now you don't have $100 in your checking account. But it takes a little bit of time for that check to be cashed by say the grocery store. 
And so while it may appear if you went and checked your banking account or your checking account immediately after the grocery store purchase, it may appear that you have $100, but in fact, you only have 90. So you had this, you had to make an account, a balancing, as, it, as it's called, balancing of the checkbook. Uh, I know older people are laughing like, what are you talking about? Why are you explaining how to balance a checkbook? But for my Generation Z listeners, you've never seen a checkbook, I'm sure. So why that example? So imagine that there is a disagreement in how or the way a husband balances the checkbook or in the wife balances a checkbook. Okay, two different ways of doing it. They're, they're, the observation is accurate. There are two different ways. One person balanced it. Another person balanced it. Two different conclusions. Just because there is a difference does not mean that both are correct. Okay? There is a correct balance of that checkbook. You start with 100. You subtract 10. What if someone says you have 90 and the other person says you have 80? There are differences. Both of you went about balancing the checkbook, or both of these people went about balancing the checkbook. Both arrived at different conclusions. That does not mean that one, or it does not mean that both are correct or both are incorrect. Okay, so it doesn't follow. Just because we observe differences doesn't mean that there's not an underlying truth to the matter. Okay. It is not so clear. Okay, this is, this is helpful, I think. It is not so clear that such a wide diversity of morals actually exists. Instead, it could be that there is a difference over facts and not the values. So this is like from the book, um, you know, Cinecide. The, the underlying moral, you look at that culture and you say, wow, that, you know, maybe your first impression is that is, cr that's crazy. You, you, you authorize the killing of your elderly? Wow. And I may personally say, um, you know, that's a shocker. I wouldn't, wouldn't have expected that to exist out there. You know, your, your neighbor's doing things a little bit differently or the husband or wife balancing the checkbook differently. But is that actually a difference in morality or not? So let's look at a couple of examples. This is often a, a hotly debated one um, in society, and that's the, the topic of abortion. Well, pro-life and pro-choice both hold to the value that we should not take the lives of innocent human persons. So you may say, well, you know, there's a, there's a clear divide in morality between these two groups of people, pro-life and pro-choice, so to speak. Is there? Is there a real difference? Is the real difference in, is, a, is it a moral issue? Well, we have to be careful, right? I mean, we can have an argument about this or a discussion about this, but I, I would say, and that's what the claim in, in this, this lecture was, that there's actually not a contention. There's not a difference in a moral issue here. Both groups value, value human life, and both groups value and believe you should not take the life of an innocent human. So it's not an issue of morality. It's an issue of facts, as it were. So but they differ, the, the groups differ over who counts as a person. So the issue is not morality. The issue is what defines a person. How about the example of eating beef? Eating beef, I love this example. Hindus won't eat beef since the cow might be grandma. Yet Christians will eat beef 
because they don't think the cow is grandma. So if you're not familiar with some of the principles or the practices of the Hindu religion, there's this notion of reincarnation. So grandma may have died and grandma may have come back to life reincarnated, incarnate, put on flesh, re, so you, you did it once and you're now you're doing it again, you're reincarnating as something else, as not a grandma as a human, but grandma as a cow. And so they say, we don't want to eat beef because that may be eating grandma. Well, Christians don't believe in reincarnation. And so they say, I have no problem eating beef because I don't believe it's grandma. So difference is that is that a difference in value or what they believe to be facts and so here's the here's the distinction both share the value of not eating grandma (laughs) so there's a value there we should not eat grandma okay there's no there's no difference there the difference is who do we believe the grandma is so do we believe the cow is grandma or the cow is not grandma So that's a little bit of a helpful way of saying that just because, just because there are cultural differences, number one, the conclusion does not follow that there is no objective morality. Okay, just because two people balance a checkbook differently doesn't mean there's not a right answer. Uh, Just because two households do things differently, it does not follow that one is not right or wrong. And the other thing on the cultural side is, Make a clear distinction between a moral difference and a kind of factual difference. I know there's a lot of nuance to this. I'm just acknowledging this as I did earlier. There's a lot of nuance to this discussion. There's a lot of challenging points uh, to it. But these are just some structures or some boundaries which I think are helpful in order to make a, a productive conversation. So let's go on to number two. We talk, we're talking about three types of moral relativism. The first one was kind of cultural relativism. This one is, the first one was you could say society does. This, these are things society does, and that's the definition of morality. We kind of address that, at least in an introductory way. That's not true. Society, morality is not defined by what society does. This one is you could call conventionalism, and you could look at that as society says. So society says X, therefore X is what we should do or X is what we should not do. Society defines morality. Okay, so the basic idea here is you ought to do what your society says you should do. Cultural ideas are equally valid. Okay, this is, this is a challenging one. Let's, let's unpack it a little bit. So replies to this statement. If so... If that's the case, you can't be, there cannot be an immoral society. And just let that sink in for a little bit. At the end here, we're going to unpack a number of flaws related to relativism, but just let that sink in for a little bit, because if you're hearing that for the first time, it may seem like that's definitely not true. But if you hold to the belief, hey man, there's, there's no objective morality, okay, come on pushing your religious worldview on me. Get out of here with that. Societies do things differently. You know, that's up to them to decide. Society determines what's right and wrong, okay? And that's how it is. Well, if you believe that, if you believe that the morality is defined by the society, you can never have an immoral society. 
by definition. If society determines what is right and what is wrong, then that's the determination. There is no factor outside of society that can make that pronouncement. So the example of the Nure- of Nuremberg during the time of the Nazis is, is often you know, brought up here. A not, the Nazis appeal to this idea that there is no overarching moral truths by which we can judge one another. But on this view, we could not have judged the Nazis. Yet what they did was clearly immoral. Okay, so if we say, look, whatever society says is right is right, whatever society says is wrong is wrong, therefore something as utterly horrible and profoundly evil as the Nazi regime, we could not say that that is immoral or evil or wrong. We could not say that because we say, look, their society just believed that that was right. And who are we? Who are we to make a pronouncement? Who are we to make a pronouncement that killing, torturing and killing millions of people is not wrong? We couldn't say that. So number two, you cannot critique your own society. If you believe that society says, whatever society says defines morality, you cannot critique your own society. But if this were true, then it would be immoral to go against your own society. Then there cannot be any moral reformers who by definition would be immoral. Yet this seems also clearly to be mistaken. Okay, so... If society, whatever society says is right, then, and you live within that society, and the definition of morality is defined by the society, no one within that society can say that the society is right or wrong. So you, you, you only have one choice. If you are to believe that morality is subjective, is relative, and one of the ways you believe that morality is relative is defined by the society in which to which determines what is right and wrong, then you, as a product of that society, you cannot say that society itself is wrong or is right. You have to just agree with it. So another controversial topic here, uh, this, this also applies to this notion of gay marriage. And I'm not talking about anything in the Bible or the Christian view or anything like that whatsoever. I'm not talking about uh, what I personally believe to be the truth or what I also personally believe to be how uh, many homosexual people have been really ill-treated by people that believe in God. We can touch on that. I'm not talking about anything like that at all. I'm just talking about it from a perspective of moral relativism, and the society says, therefore, determines what is right and wrong. So homosexuals want society's approval, and thus want to change society's standard. Namely, that marriage is only for a man and a woman. Yet, if there is a morally normative standard for the family, then it is something we ought not change. But if the family is just a human creation that we can change, then we already have a society standard. Society has already agreed that heterosexual marriage is to be the standard. Why then which? Why then should we as a society promote a change as a moral obligation if what is right is just what society says? So I'm just reading from the lecture notes of this class again. 
Um, and again, I know this is deeply controversial, but the argument again is not from the Bible or anything like that. And it's not even, I'm not even making an argument for, for or against the matter. The point here is related to relativism. And society says, if society defines what is right and wrong, then you would say, well, society has already determined what marriage is. And so that would be strange for somebody or a group of people within the society to make a claim against society. If you were to do that, then you would have to say, no, there is a standard above or beyond what society says is right and wrong that is actually counter to what society says. And of course, this is, I think most people believe this is just kind of intuitive, but there are also people that believe, no, what's, there is nothing objective about morality. There's nothing absolute. It's just what society says. Okay, so the last part here will take a little bit of unpacking as well. And this is the, the third part of moral relativism that we're trying to kind of dismantle, at least in some ways. The third one is subjectivism, subjectivism, because a lot of people don't really walk around. I would, I think, uh, yeah, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think people really walk around saying, you know, morality is defined by what culture does or society does. Morality is defined by what society or culture says. I think they mainly, I think perhaps we all mainly walk around with this third notion of moral relativism, and that is a, I say relativism, or because I said so, relativism. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? I say what's right and wrong. Okay. So let's look at this notion of subjectivism, or I say so, as as a de- definition of where moral relativism, it's a type of moral relativism, but we're going to look at it from the perspective of seven fatal flaws of having a relativism or moral relativity perspective. As we get into these, you'll see quite quickly that if you pick up the main principle that the very notion of being a relativist is is self-defeating, then you'll you'll get the rest of the flaws quite easily. Okay, so before we get to the seven flaws, let's look at it like this uh, to the lecture notes. We should use an appeal to moral intuition to show these flaws. The moral truths are known directly and immediately. Once you understand the concepts, you simply see that the position is wrong. Example, murder is wrong, torturing babies for fun is wrong, etc. These are clear-cut examples of moral truths, and the burden of proof should be on the person who denies them. Okay. Flaw number one. If morality is relative, then relativists can never say something is wrong in itself. That is to say, they cannot claim something is intrinsically or objectively wrong for all people. So this is a big one. This is a big one. Um, and it's it's kind of shocking how you may encounter people, um, young or old. I, I don't know if there's, a, if there's a clear delineation of age or culture or anything like that. But if you get into this camp of folks that are a moral relativist, and again, we, we, we're talking about three different types, but you could be all three of them. If you get the ground truth of the position, if you say, look, man, that's maybe true for you, but not true for everyone. You know, th- that's the kind of attitude people have. 
if you're truly if you truly are a relativist you can never say something is wrong truly objectively intrinsically for all people and i would just encourage people listening for themselves or if they're in a discussion with other people like don't just gloss over these things like really try to answer them for yourselves and what does that say about you as a human if you really stand on the ground that you could say um, torturing babies for fun you know may not be may not be something I would do but you know if you want to do it you know what's if it's good for you, it's good for me. You know, this is kind of the view on a lot of different things. Um, murdering people, stealing from people, lying, living a life of dishonesty. That is wrong. If you say, hey man, you know, it's, it's just not something I would do, but you know, if you want to do it, you can do it. So the flaw here, number one, is you can never say something is intrinsically, objectively for all people wrong. Just think about that, what kind of position that puts you in as a person. Flaw number two, relativists cannot complain about the problem of evil. This should make you fall on the floor. Uh, When raised as a problem for belief in Christianity, people intend this to mean that evil really exists in the world. But to be consistent, evil must be relative to individuals. Things like school shootings, You can't say that that's evil. You can't say it's wrong. You cannot say that universally for all people if you are a relativist. This should just be, I mean, again, like I said, once you kind of pick up the principle, the the rest of the flaws just kind of follow and should just make you realize like there's something really intrinsically wrong with this position. Because if you are a true relativist, You can't say that that is wrong. You cannot say a school shooting is universally wrong across the entire world. And if you can't say that, something's wrong with you. Flaw number three, relativists cannot place blame or accept praise. This is is kind of a shocker. We praise people like Mother Teresa for doing truly good things, not simply if what she did, we happen to like. So just because it's not like we praise things just because it kind of falls into the camp of things we agree with, we believe things are objectively right and therefore we praise them. But on relativism or based on relativism, there is no objective goodness or badness. Praising or blaming another is to make a moral judgment. But on this view, there is nothing for which to praise or blame another. If you're truly a relativist, you cannot make a universal praise or blame. Flaws 4 through 7, quickly I'll just read through them. Relativists cannot claim anything as unfair or unjust. These concepts are normative too and presuppose a universal standard. But they make no sense if morality is relative to individuals. Number five, relativists cannot improve their own morality. There's an example here, bowling. You can improve your bowling when you have a standard against which you can measure your performance. But here, there's no such standard. If relativism is true, there's no standard. So you cannot improve if you do not have a standard by which you can improve improve towards. Individuals can change their morality, but that does not solve this problem. Flaw number six, 
relativists cannot have meaningful moral discussions. If there is no such thing as a common good, then such discussions, for example, in politics, are meaningless. Flaw number seven, relativists cannot promote the obligation to be tolerant. Tolerance makes sense only if there is objective moral truth. Truth. If there are no interpersonal moral obligations, then there is no basis to promote the virtue of tolerance. Okay. So what are the results or what are the conclusions of someone that is practicing moral relativism? Well, number one, it's a world in which nothing is wrong, evil, or good for all people. There's no accountability, no meaningful moral discourse, no moral tolerance. And so how do you live this way? If that was the world, that is the logical conclusion of living in a world as a moral relativist. And there's multiple types, but broadly speaking, moral relativism. Hey, good for you. It's good for me. Just because it's good for me and just because I wouldn't do something doesn't mean it's universally wrong. I like to live my life this way. That doesn't mean it's universally right. You're a relativist. Well, how do you actually live in a world that way? People don't actually live that way. You get to see what people's real moral intuitions are when their guard is not up. So, for example, people cannot complain of injustice, but we do. I mean, philosophically, and I totally get that people don't normally just live in a philosophical, actual, structured, argumentative way in the sense of premise, you know, A, B, C, therefore conclusion D. People do not walk around living that way. Um, but whenever they're kind of in a in a discussion with you or in an interchange of ideas with you where they kind of fall on one side and you fall on the other, you know, they really argue as if they are relativist because they don't want to feel like it seems like the core issue or a core issue is that you don't want people to feel like you're imposing, you're imposing your beliefs on them. But when someone is not in that dialogue, discussion, or debate, and they're actually just living their life, we realize no one is a relativist. Nobody is. Nobody is. Um, Just take any political discussion or just take, hey, you know, I wouldn't steal, uh, but, you know, I'm not saying that stealing is universally wrong. Well, all you have to do to test that is just steal something from them (laughs) and see and see what their reaction is. You know, I think stealing's wrong, but you know, it may not be wrong for everyone. Well, you steal something from them, they get mad, they file police charges on you, as they should. But then you say, why are you doing this? And you say, because it's wrong. And, and I say, well, how can you impose your values on me? I don't think stealing is wrong. I mean, it's just absurd. As you get into it, it's just absurd. And so I think people may argue as if they are relative relativists, but as we and we live in life, we're actually not. If people were to speak up against injustice, they deny relativism. But if they don't speak up about injustice, then they deny their humanity. They deny their humanity. And so if someone were to actually f- live out the claims that they are a relativist, that there are no such things as objective moral values. If they actually lived that out practically, they didn't speak up 
when somebody was murdered. They didn't say that stealing was wrong, torturing a baby for fun was wrong, school shootings, wrong, any shooting, <laughs> wrong. Um, then you deny your humanity. You would deny your humanity. So three tactics for addressing relativism. Again, I'll, I'll conclude here with the lectures from this, uh, this lecture at Biola, and we'll go back to the book for, for a little bit here. Number one, show how relativism commits suicide. The example, someone says you shouldn't force your morality upon me. Reply, why not? They will in turn push their morality upon you. So again, back to what I alluded to, mentioned briefly, a big part of this discussion really is people don't want someone else determining or imposing or pushing their values onto them. But when you say, when they say, don't, don't push your values on me, get out of here, you antiquated judgmental Christian, don't, don't put your views on me. And you say, why not? Well, they would in turn immediately go back and put, they would push their values onto you. So is it, is it just like, we're just going to have an arm wrestling match and the, whoever, whoever wins at the end is right. No, no. It's not society says, it's not society does. And as we saw, there's many flaws to believing that it's not just what an individual says that should be considered as an objective, absolute, universal, moral value for all people. Number two, press the person's hot button. Push the relative's particular moral concern by relativizing it. This forces the relativist to see that he or she really holds to an objective standard. This takes a little bit of unpacking and maybe we'll get into um, a book by the person who gave this talk at Biola, Greg Kokel. He has a great book called Tactics. Um, and so what he's describing here, he's introducing some of the tactics from that book into this talk that he gave at Biola. Um, but just, um, just relativize whatever someone says. So if someone says there are no moral truths, okay, and you say, hmm, they say there are no absolute moral truths, then you say, well, is that absolutely true? Right? If someone is saying that there are no absolutes, but they and themselves are pushing that on you as an absolute, then it just removes the rug right out from under them. If everything is relative, then it has to conclude, you have to conclude, and they would have to conclude that their absolute statements are also relative. And number three here as a tactic presented is force the tolerance issue. If tolerance is a virtue, then it makes sense only in a world in which objective morals exist. Okay. All right, so we'll wrap up there with that part of the, the conversation. Again, these are big questions and in a short-ish podcast. We're not going to get into all the details. Um, and there's, there's objections to these things and there's other ways of looking at these things. But I think it at least begins to open up the dialogue about where do moral values come from? And if we believe there are no objective absolute moral values then you say hmm well what is the logical conclusion of that belief and then we saw in society and as an individual 
seven fatal flaws to having that view, to saying there's no objective morals, it's all relative, it's all subjective. What is the conclusion of that? And you really saw, you really saw that even though someone could put forth a, a masterful argument for all morals being relative and subjective, when it comes down to the real rubber meeting the road, as it were, living life, nobody lives this way. Nobody lives this way. And so that's why I kind of, the word I'm, I used at the beginning, intuition, there's probably a better word to it. What I mean is kind of just an, an honest look at this question. Again, not from a argumentative perspective, because I know people will battle and they want to save face, but if you really press ourselves personally, what would be a life that lives out the worldview that everything is relative? And you realize it would, if it actually happened, it would be utter chaos. But we realize it doesn't actually happen. So where the rubber meets the road, the real honest look at this is there are no real relativists when it comes to practicality and actuality of living out their worldview. Okay, so not conclusively, but at least we answered or we tried to answer uh, one of the questions, and that is, do objective moral values exist? Okay, there's more to be said on the, on the discussion or on the topic to be sure, but at least we made a little bit of an introduction. So number two, I'm back to the book now. The second way skeptics make a case against the existence of objective moral values is by attempting to demonstrate that our sense of right and wrong is just a byproduct of evolution. And so this would be a part of the conversation where people do acknowledge that, look, that we're not relativists here. There are certain things that we believe are objectively right and wrong in a universal way across all peoples for all of time. Okay, so you've gotten that far in the discussion. Well, then the discussion may go, well, to me, as a skeptic, it doesn't follow that just because there are objective right and wrong, there are, are objective moral standards, it doesn't follow that there has to be some you know, fairy in the sky per giving those pronouncements. Evolution can clearly make the claim or can clearly be the reason for by which we come to those objective conclusions of right and wrong. And it's in some ways beyond the scope of this, this episode, but many times, you know, you might, if someone says that, and this is back to a tactic from Greg Kokel's book, but you might, you might just say, what, what causes you to believe that? What, what, what evidence have you looked at that would cause you to believe that? That being objective moral values are a byproduct of evolutionary processes. What causes you to believe that? And of course, most people <laughs> probably would just give you a blank stare because it's, it's kind of a hand-wavy way of not really addressing the issue. Oh, well, that's just, it could, it's just probably just from evolution. Well, as we've said many times in these episodes, that, that could be the case. It's possible that that's the case. But if someone's telling you that, what causes you to believe that? What evidence have you looked at to believe that? That's just a tactic, just... When someone makes a claim like that, and again, I think we'll do a whole series on, now that I'm thinking about it, on Greg Kokel's book on tactics, because it's awesome and it's very helpful. But one of those is just asking questions. Someone makes a claim, just ask a question. What, 
What causes, what has caused you to believe that? Or what makes you think that? What evidence have you looked at that makes you believe that? And most people may, might not say anything because they haven't really thought deeply about it, but maybe someone has thought deeply about it. And maybe they say, as, as written here in the book, some people will say, well, animals do things that are kind to other animals that don't seem to have any societal or let's say survival rather advantage to them. You know, maybe a, a dolphin helps a swimmer uh, get back to shore or something like this, right? We've seen, you know, these, these videos that seem to have some indication that there is some kind of what we may call a moral sense being lived out in animals, okay? So then the, then the hand-wavy conclusion would be, therefore, right? I saw a dolphin help a swimmer get back to shore. Therefore, <laughs> objective right and wrong is a universal standard that has been handed down not by God, but by evolution. Well, I, I just point out one thing related to that, and it's worth exploring further, but this is from the book here. I thought this was, was quite helpful. Second, it's highly questionable to describe animal behavior in terms of morality. Dolphins, for example, are known for random acts of kindness. This is what I just mentioned. They've saved swimmers from sharks and have even guarded, guided stranded whales back to sea. But morality, as humans intuitively understand it, is not merely a description of what is good and bad, it is also a prescription of what we should and shouldn't do. So I think this is a key difference. And again, if people really think about this, they, they just universally understand that there is a massive difference between what we may observe in an isolated case between animals and what we believe as humans is right and wrong. But you have to really have someone that's really seeking the truth and not trying to just win a debate. So there's a key, the key word here is prescription and should. Okay. If we apply the same standard, okay, this same standard, the same standard that we as humans have for right and wrong, if we apply this same standard to the animal world, we would have to say what dolphins should do. We would have to say just because because morality is not just a backwards-looking classification. This thing that was done is good. This thing that was done is bad. It's not a backwards-looking description. It is a, I'm just elaborating here, this is not from the book, but it is a forward-looking prescription, okay? So if we were to apply that universal to the animal, for animals, we would have to say not only that the dolphin helping a swimmer back to shore was good, and that's, that is the definition as a description of that act, we would have to make a prescriptive future forward-looking claim that this is how dolphins should behave in a go-forward future manner. And we, no rational human, we just, we don't do this. And no one believes we should do this. Back to the book, but no one applies moral obligations to animals. We see their actions as facts of their existence, not something appropriate for moral judgment. Is there ever moral outrage when animals kill each other, or for that matter, when animals do anything? Even if evolutionary theory accurately explained how certain behaviors evolved into aid survival, 
it wouldn't explain the jump to our human sense of moral obligation. And I think that's just like a really key point here. Um, if we believe that there are objective morals, right and wrong, universals that we can apply across all people, and then we have to make that next question, where do these come from? And if you believe that they came just from evolution, some of the evidence that is often cited as we just did is that animals seem to at times act in a manner that is consistent with what humans would say is right and wrong. But the big distinction there is it's not just descriptive, it's prescriptive. It's what not only what animals have done randomly as we've been able to observe them, but it's it, we would have to apply that universally to what animals should do in the future. Okay, so killing is wrong. Killing your species is wrong. Well, do we apply that to animals when they kill each other? When they kill each other, do we? Is there an outcry for that? There, there is not. There is not because intuitively, and I would say in practicality, we know intuitively that there is not a universal moral standard that is applied across all species. Therefore, it's not the same as what humans believe to be moral, right and wrong, universal, objective, moral values. Therefore, there's reason not to believe that this sense of objective moral values came through evolutionary processes or we would have to be consistent in the application of those objective moral values across the entire animal kingdom, as it were. Okay, there's more to the book, but I think that was enough for this for this podcast. Let's go back to the book, though, uh, get some key points, and then we'll wrap it up and move on to our next question in the next episode. Some key points here. Our basic human intuition tells us that some things are right and wrong for all people and are not subject to a person's individuals a person's individual judgment if this is true then objective moral values and duties exist some people challenge the reality of objective morality because cultures sometimes appear to differ on what is considered moral however this is often a disagreement on circumstances rather than on underlying moral values other people claim that evolutionary theory explains the development of our moral understanding and that it's only an illusion that objective moral values exist. But labeling animal behavior in terms of human morality is problematic because no one believes animals have moral obligations, a key part of what we normally associate with human morality. We cannot prove that objective moral values exist. But the weight of evidence, based on cultural observation and our deepest human int intuition, is that certain values and duties transcend human opinion and are binding on all people. Moral laws. If moral laws exist, the best explanation for these laws is the existence of a moral law giver. And that's the punchline of this moral argument, that if objective moral values exist then they had to have come from somewhere. If we believe that there is not good evidence to see that those moral laws have, have come through evolutionary processes, then it still begs the question, where did they come from? If these are universal standards by which all peoples in all times should be following, we could call those things moral laws. If there is a law, then there has to be a law maker or a law giver. If there are moral laws, there needs to be a moral law giver. Okay, that's consistent with what's with what's in the Bible. 
And um, that doesn't mean that we can prove it. It doesn't mean that there aren't other possibilities, but it means the weight of evidence, there's good reasons for, for the belief that there is a moral lawgiver that has given to us as humans universal moral truths, moral values. All right, so back to the book real quick. We'll do an open the conversation and then close, close out this episode. So opening the conversation on this topic, imagine that someone you know broke into your house and stole everything in your room. When you confronted the person, they shrugged and said, I think stealing is fine. I had fun wiping out your room. How would you respond? And so here, the hint here is you could introduce and explain the term objective moral values. That's the example I referenced earlier. You know, if it's good for you, it's good for me. I'm not saying my my values are right. I'm not trying to impose anything. But when people come down to actual life, they do believe that there is objective right and wrong and they will oppose it or impose it on other people in the sense of you steal from me, I'm filing police charges. Okay, so back to the original quote from the girl on the blog here. I have a totally different view on the value of Christianity. Do we really need religion in this day and age? If you know the difference between right and wrong, why do you need religion? If you can show respect, why do you need religion? If you can make a positive difference in someone's life, why do you need religion? What matters is how you treat someone. Put a smile on their faces. It's that easy. So how would you respond to that after kind of knowing some of the things we talked about in this episode, some of the things we read from the book, things we introduced from a lecture from Greg Kokel from Biola on relativism. You could at least begin to have the conversation with somebody about how do we know what is right and wrong? Is that universally right and wrong? How do you, how do you know how to treat somebody? And is the way you treat somebody, is that universally right and wrong? What causes you to believe that? Why, why do you believe that is right? What, what evidence or what, what makes you believe what you think is wrong is actually wrong. And if so, if you do believe the way you're treating someone is the way to treat somebody, and I think everyone intuitively does that, why why would you be doing something if you didn't think it was the right way to do it? And why would you not choose not to do certain things if you didn't believe those to be wrong? And so you do have that intuition within. You live your life according to that intuition. Where do you think that that came from? Where do you think that moral values came from and you could at least begin to have that discussion begin to have that discussion all right so now we're gonna gonna transition out of this episode uh, but the, the episode coming up is a little interesting titled one uh, it's the next chapter in this book and we'll get into the background when we cover it then but that is getting into chapter five what is the difference between God and a flying spaghetti monster <laughs> 